I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today, and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, society and science. My name is Samir Rahim. This week we're talking to science writer Philip Ball about the life and work of Stephen Hawking. A new biography by Charles Seif claims that the celebrated scientist was overrated and indeed an aggressive self-promoter. How true is the accusation? Philip reviewed the biography for Prospect and joins us to talk about the human side of Hawking, the dark side of celebrity, what the famous scientist actually believed, and how we treated him is related to how we see issues of disability. Phil, thanks for joining us on the Prospect Podcast. Pleasure, thank you. If there's one contemporary figure who sums up the achievements of modern science, then it's Stephen Hawking. He was probably the best-known scientist in the world before his death in 2018. Um, There was an Oscar-winning film in 2014, I think, called The Theory of Everything. Um, Numerous appearances on adverts and television programmes and documentaries. Um, And we're going to go into whether his fame was, as it were, deserved or not. But first, Phil, let's let's just take Hawking the physicist. Um, What were his main achievements? Well... He was working in the area of general relativity. This is the theory that Einstein drew up in the early part of the 20th century to understand gravitation. And uh, for many decades, actually, after Einstein came up with the theory, people didn't quite know what to do with it. It was mathematically difficult. And for a long time, it kind of languished and physicists did other things. And it was really in the 1960s So this was when Hawking was an undergraduate and then starting his graduate career in the early 60s. It was really at that time that people started, physicists started to get back interested in general relativity and what it could tell us about gravitation um, in the cosmos. So that's ranging from the theory of how stars form and what happens to stars to the the whole big picture of the whole universe or the whole cosmos. What does general relativity tell us about the nature of that? So this was a time when we just started to understand that uh, the universe was expanding, um, that the Big Bang was real. That was actually something that was discovered in the 1960s. And this this completely transformed our idea of what the universe was like, that it was no longer seen as this sort of static, eternal space, but that it was something that had a beginning 
uh, that was growing from that beginning. And general relativity was the theory that could tell us how that happened. So this was the area that Hawking was working in. And in particular, what he, is, he began doing in his early graduate career was looking at the question of what are called singularities. And these are, I mean, they happen everywhere in physics. It's basically a singularity is something where the equation blows up and things become infinite. And in general relativity, that was known to, to happen in principle when a star collapses under its own gravity. If the star is, is big enough, that collapse seems to have no, uh, no end point to it. So the star just shrinks and shrinks by its own gravity because it's, it's, it's run out of fuel, so it doesn't have the energy to sort of keep itself expanded. And the idea was that eventually it shrinks to nothing. This is what general relativity said, that you get a black hole. This is what a black hole is. It's basically a star that's collapsed to an infinitely small point, uh, and it still has its gravity, but all the mass is condensed into this point. And there was a, a controversy around that time of whether this could really happen to stars, because it seemed like an absurd idea, really, that you could get, you know, an infinite uh, density of matter. But around this time, Roger Penrose, who won last year's Nobel Prize in Physics for the, this work, uh, he showed that these singularities in collapsing stars were real. They really could happen. And this was the area that Hawking started to work in, particularly in, in uh, conjunction with, with Penrose for a time. So the two of them worked on singularities in black holes, but they also realized that the same mathematics could be applied to understand the universe, to understand the, the, the Big Bang. That in fact, what a Big Bang looked like, this expanding universe, was rather like a black hole in reverse or a collapsing star in reverse. And so they were using these ideas too to try to understand cosmology, to understand how the universe began and how it would evolve. So that was really the area in which Hawking throughout his career made his, his, his really important contributions. Yes, and you mentioned uh, Roger Penrose there, who's a very well-respected physicist, you know, he's written books himself, um, but, you know, his status in the popular imagination is, is not really anything like Stephen Hawking's, you know, and why is that? <laughs> well, that's everything in a way, I think, hinges on that question. Um, you know, not just for Penrose, although Penrose's work was in, you know, many respects, as the Nobel shows, was, was equally as important as Hawking's. But there were many other people, increasingly so, from the 1970s onwards, working in these sorts of areas. Um, and this is just one area of physics, and there are plenty of other, you know, physicists who are doing amazing work and, of course, have been winning Nobels every year. So why is it that Hawking was singled out? And um, to, to, to my mind, there are some, I guess, some, some disturbing aspects to this question, because I think it has to be said that the, 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 the main reason why that seems to be so was the public interest that was generated around the disability that he had, the condition that he had, um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or motor neuron disease, that, you know, throughout his life since it was diagnosed in his early days as a graduate student, uh, gradually robbed Hawking of his ability to move and then eventually his ability to speak. And, you know, he ended his life in this almost entirely paralyzed state, communicating through his voice synthesizer and communicating by computer. And I, I think it's undeniable that it was the public fascination with that predicament 
really, and and the fact that it was uh, someone who was in such an extreme predicament, um, but that nevertheless was exploring these completely, I mean, literally cosmic, you know, mind-boggling ideas in physics. It was somehow that um, that 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 uh, dichotomy that that really seemed to generate the public interest around Hawking, and that was really what I think what allowed um, a brief history of time to take off when it was published in 1988. So, you know, after that, Hawking became a household name. The book was obviously phenomenally successful around the world. And it was, uh, it, it's still puzzling to, you know, if you if you look at that book now, it, it, it's, it did a good job of uh, explaining the sort of work that Hawking was doing, but no more so than the sorts of books that plenty of other people were writing on this topic or have written since on this topic. Um, so there was nothing in that to distinguish uh, Hawking from other people who were both doing the, 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 the scientific research and popularizing it. So it was somehow this fascination, and I think this discomfort that existed publicly around Hawking's condition, Hawking's disability, that played a huge role in creating the kind of persona. And, you know, I think it really was a persona, um, a myth, really, a mythical figure that Hawking became. Yeah, my edition of A Brief History of Time, there's quite a prominent picture of Hawking on the front cover. And um, I wonder whether we can ask the difficult question of how much he was complicit in the process you just described? Oh, I think uh, he was absolutely complicit in it. And but I think it would be unfair to hold that against him in, in some ways, because, you know, he was I think it, it's very clear that he was someone who enjoyed fame, enjoyed the public profile he had. And why should he not? <laughs> Plenty of people do. I, I, I guess um, what what feels a little bit harder to negotiate and to you know to figure out how how we should think about this i i suppose what 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 it seems is whether there was some complicity in the notion that i think what it comes down to is that people were fascinated by how it was that someone with this sort of disability in a wheelchair could to put it bluntly and i think we need to could be so intelligent i think what it, it always seemed to reveal to me was this discomfort we still have or this sort of cognitive dissonance we still have and obviously should not have but clearly do with the notion that someone with a disability of this sort that renders it you know very hard and eventually impossible for them even to speak that someone like that can have such a high degree of intellect and i think that's the issue for me that just hasn't been probed enough because to me what happened to hawking reveals this discomfort in society that we still have all this 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 struggle we have to reconcile those two considerations, that someone can have this kind of degree of disability and yet still be such a brilliant physicist. If anyone remembers anything from that book, it's, he talks about um, creating a, or finding a theory of everything. Uh, and in his resonant phrase, it's, you know, knowing the mind of God. And um, there's certainly a sort of sage-like aspect to Hawking wasn't there? The idea that this guy might have really all the answers, and we're not just talking scientific answers, we're talking the answers to much bigger questions. He, he certainly uh, ventured beyond um, his specific area of physics, and he commenting on all sorts of things. 
Well, I think this is another aspect of his persona. The fact that he had th this disability meant that he was he became so much more of a kind of blank screen on which we could project all kinds of fantasies. And in some ways that became you know, all the more uncomfortable because Hawking was someone who was quite happy to pronounce on areas in which he wasn't a specialist at all. And what did seem to happen was that there was a complicity I think probably involving the scientific community, but much more in the sort of public uh, arena, a, a complicity in creating this kind of guru, you know, someone who who was portrayed as having all the answers to all the questions, whereas it was very clear and, you know, his scientific colleagues, I sometimes, I sometimes made no bones about this, that he wasn't someone who particularly knew well he certainly didn't know anything much about for example artificial intelligence or extraterrestrial intelligence these were two areas that he you know was very vocal on in, in later in life and uh this i think this 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 did create problems because every pronouncement of his was given such weight a weight that certainly wasn't justified and would not have been given to the pronouncements of anyone else venturing outside their field of expertise and to make these, you know, these general uh, statements that he did. And I think sometimes we saw, you know, that that did run into problems. So when he talked about the mind of God, it was clearly a, you know, rhetorical phrase that he figured would sound good and it, it, it you know, it caught the public imagination. It, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, there was nothing profound in that. There was certainly nothing, nothing theologically profound in that. In fact, you know, famously, Hawking had no time for theology or anything religious. It was the same when, in a later book, uh, a, a book that he co-authored, he said that he he had this phrase, "Philosophy is dead." He was basically saying, you know, now the questions that philosophy used to ask, we have to turn to science and particularly to physics to answer which again seemed you know a fairly naive thing to say and didn't seem to come from any great understanding of philosophy but again was given this incredible weight and people were you know debating and philosophers were responding to what he could mean by this where it was really a, a throwaway comment um that i think he he recognized would be catchy and would you know bring attention just to defend him a little bit i mean people who are elevated to these statuses with you know come out of their fields and become these great figures often they aren't necessarily you know as it were the best people in that field but he did certainly inspire lots of people there's lots of public interest in science you know you say if he said something people were more interested in it um then you know if uh, another scientist has said it so he he did give a public face to what as he says is often quite difficult physics Oh, absolutely. I, you know, and, and I, I wouldn't want any of this to detract from what was, without doubt, a, a, a stellar scientific career. And, and I think it's, it's, it's equally true. You're quite right, Samir, to say that, you know, he was in many ways instrumental to bringing people into science and into this particular area of science who w wouldn't have necessarily had an interest otherwise. So, you know, when he gave the, the, the Reef lectures uh, a, a few years ago, he clearly had a huge audience for that that reached way beyond the kind of audiences that most scientific figures, scientists and popularizers of science could hope to command. And I think that on the whole, that has to be a good thing. I, 
I, it feels like we have to be a bit more hesitant when what comes with that is a kind of false authority, you know, on 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 areas where he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't an expert. But I think it's absolutely true to say that you know he he did a great deal uh, for raising public interest in science. And I think it, it has to be acknowledged that he did a great deal for raising awareness about his condition, about motor neuron disease and about disability in, in general. You know, he famously featured in the opening ceremony of the uh, Paralympics in, in the UK. So, you know, there were, there were definitely good things that came out of the public profile he had. One of the more uncomfortable passages in, in, in your uh, review for us is when you talk about his uh, relationship with his collaborators, um, people who helped him write Brief History of Time, people who co-authored scientific papers, and his sort of lack of acknowledgement of that. And in some cases, with, with much younger colleagues, determination to sort of trump them, as it were, and almost, in a way, take away their achievements. Well, you know, I do wonder whether this is an aspect of the kind of collusion that sometimes went on in the scientific world, because it's by no means unusual for people to be begrudging of their competitors or people who have rival ideas. Um, and it's it, sadly not unusual for more senior figures to not give adequate credit to more junior ones to junior collaborators. I mean, I think the norm, I should say, is quite the opposite that, you know, in general, more senior figures bend over backwards to give credit to young people who really need it more than they do. But but it, it nevertheless, it did seem striking to me. And we're talking here about the Charles Steve's uh, biography of, of Hawking, which really goes into these um, these details. And it was, although I'd heard some of those stories before, it was striking to me how many of them there were and how 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 strongly sometimes he opposed and uh, almost campaigned against younger people who had ideas that seemed to challenge some of his own. I mean, that included some of his students when, you know, some of the, the ideas, the speculative ideas he had, if students weren't coming up with work that seemed to validate those ideas, then he wasn't happy. And if some of them came up with, with, with work that seemed to contradict them, he really wasn't happy. And there was one instance in particular with a, a, one, one of his students, who was a student for a while, where Hawking you know, almost tried to get him drummed off his graduate course because of the, he didn't like the results that this poor chap was coming up with because they seemed to conflict. And the 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 picture that seemed to emerge from that was of someone who was less less interested sometimes in seeming to find out whether his ideas were right and more interested in finding people and ideas and work that would confirm them and that again isn't unusual in science but it's not a good look and the, the you know the number of times that it happened with hawking must leave you wondering whether you know this was a, a kind of a personality trait that sometimes might have compromised his integrity as a scientist and his, his ability to give credit to others. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since his death in 2018, there's been a sort of almost canonization of Hawking. And you cite an example of apparently there's a, there's a gold watch inlaid with wooden discs taken from Hawking's desk on sale for 19 grand, almost like a, a sort of, um, you know, a shard of Christ's true cross. And I wonder whether, you know, as traditional, maybe religious figures and even political figures, you know, their authority is faded in the West. We do turn to scientists, you know, Hawking, but also you can even say figures like, you know, David Attenborough, perhaps even Chris Whitty to provide scientific certainty uh, but also a greater kind of wisdom. I mean, are scientists now fulfilling the role that were fulfilled by um, others in the past? Well, that I think that that uh, has some truth in it, definitely. I think Hawking, in this respect, as in pretty much every other, was unusual in the extent to which that happened. And it really is, you know, something like a canonization, as you say. I mean, he was, you know, there is a, a tombstone for him in, in Westminster Abbey. And I, th- I think it's true that, you know, since his death, that there has been this sort of aura created uh, even more around him. And I think it's one that Hawking himself was quite happy to see happen and probably encouraged in some ways. So he never missed a chance to remind people that he was born exactly 300 years after Galileo died. So he's, you know, very happy to have his name linked to another figure who has himself actually been canonised. You know, the way that Galileo is now regarded is quite out of, sometimes out of proportion to what he actually said and did. Um, so, you know, I think Stephen Hawking was was, was very happy to to see this happen. I think in general, and actually this is, you know, there's no one that this is more true of than Roger Penrose. In general, scientific figures withdraw. They run a mile from that sort of thing. You know, they really don't want to be seen as these oracles. Uh, So that's really where Hawking was different. And, you know, there have been other cases of Nobel laureate. Hawking never won a Nobel, but uh, there have been other cases of Nobel laureates that have been elevated to this position and have quite happily used that that stage to pro- pro- proclaim on in areas where they really have no expertise but i think that this was something that you know that hawking was quite happy to do on the whole i think you know in areas like as i say the future of ai and the prospects for extraterrestrial intelligence that you know 
it, it's it's not going to do great harm, perhaps, to the public discourse to have someone saying the things he did without great background of knowledge. But nevertheless, you know, there are real hazards when when this is allowed to happen and when people, you know, indulge it. There have been Nobel laureates in the past. I mean, James Watson, you know, is one uh, who won the uh, Nobel Prize for his work on DNA and has now fallen from grace because he was quite happy to proclaim on issues of race and intelligence and the genetic component of that in ways that are now clearly seen as racist. So, you know, that when that sort of thing happens, it can do great harm to public debate on a sensitive issue. I don't think Hawking ever went near any anything like that, but the, it, it shows just what sort of hazards there can be when a, a figure is given this sort of status. And were you worried, you know, writing this review and previous work you've done on Hawking, that people would come at you for sort of taking down a sort of scientific god well i felt this uh, book review allowed me to be the messenger and so i could sort of take some refuge in that you know i i i frankly will admit that I was glad that Charles Seif had written this book because I had felt for a long time that these kinds of issues were being swept under the rug and that there was a kind of refusal it seemed to me to really face uh, the difficult questions about social attitudes to disability that Hawking's status was raising. And so, you know, I was glad to see that aired. And also the, um, you know, as I say, I'd heard some of these stories about how unfair Hawking had sometimes been to, to younger people with conflicting ideas. And it was, it was, I think, valuable to have that brought into the open. I, I think also it, it was good that, that Charles Seif looked a little bit into questions about Hawking's, my, I guess my, my, my another concern is that Hawking, when he pronounced on things like philosophy and religion, it seemed to be on the basis of no real knowledge or, you know, reading in, 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 uh, about them at all. And I didn't feel that that was particularly healthy for public debate either. So I was glad that, you know, he uh, brought that into the open a bit more. So, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't too nervous that I was going to be seen as the one who was saying these things rather than reporting on them. But I was glad to have the opportunity to to air them. Well, it's a terrific piece, and uh, thank you so much for your thoughts. Thank you. And that's all from us. Thank you for joining us this week. You can read Philip's full article, "The Problem with Deifying Stephen Hawking," on the Prospect website. Goodbye. Stay safe, and see you next week. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. 
take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.